Welcome along to Fanderson Podcast number two. I'm Ros Connors and sit back for the next hour and enjoy. I'm going to be chatting to some of those movers and shakers keeping the worlds of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson well and truly alive. we're going to be hearing all about the Barry Gray Music Archive, its discovery and its cataloguing, ready to bring it forth for the public's attention. Plus, an archive interview with the legendary Sylvia Anderson. So get ready, strap in, it's time for another Fanderson podcast. Some exciting stuff coming up over the next hour, so let's get underway. Joining me for this second Fanderson podcast is uh, Fab co-editor Mike Jones from uh, North Hertfordshire right now. You're beavering away uh, working on something I'm sure though we've just had a Fab magazine drop through the door in sunny Essex. Fantastic, glad glad it arrived there in one piece. That's uh, that's good. I just wanted to ask you because uh, to share with uh, obviously the members of Fanderson on this podcast how long have you been uh, Fab editor now and how did your involvement with it come about? My first fab was um, Fab 57 in 2007. I think I volunteered for Fanderson for um, doing some design work on some of the CD replica mini albums that um, the club have um, released through Fanderson sales. So I'm um, restoring the artwork there. And I think some so early 2007, Chris Bentley decided to step down from um, club duties to concentrate on his, um, on his books and other wonderful projects he was doing. And there was a vacancy there and I, I, I jumped at the chance. I came to a few meetings and um, yeah, I kind of jumped in at the deep end and um, yeah, it's um, it's been, been wonderful ever since to, to work on it. I think I've done 38 now. So um, we're up to, yeah, Fab um, 96 is the next one. So that's starting to come together already. So um, it's all going. Yeah. Dare I say your strength is in design and visual layout and everything. You seem to be naturally gifted at this sort of thing. How... How did you develop your style? Um, ah, bless you. No, I, I, um, I guess I've, I've always, I've always loved um, books and magazines, and I think there's a rich history associated with a lot of um, cult television with lovely books. I mentioned Chris Bentley earlier, of course. I mean, his design stuff on Fab was always an inspiration. You know, um, from a voluntary place, he, he kind of, you know, created something lovely and quite um, a lovely companion for, for these series. And um, I've, always, I've always been always been kind of um, very fond of inventive layouts and um, I've um, always been yeah very fond of all, all that kind of material. Do you enjoy the research side of it as well? I love it I love it I mean it's um, I sort of I guess I, I stepped into fab as uh, purely as, as a designer but naturally I, I found um, I do I do a lot of writing anyway and um, it kind of it was natural for me to kind of step into that area and um, when with Ian and Right at the beginning with Nick, when we were putting together the magazine, it was obvious in my mind where we were missing. There, there was content missing. You know, it's like we really need like a four pager on Space 1999 here. And my God, why can't we just discuss the video phone from Thunderbird Series One here? <laughs> it's, it's like, um, you know, it, it's like, um, well, so usually I say, Ian, can you write a six page article on the video phone from Thunderbirds? And you'd be like, oh, I can't do that. I'm busy. I don't know. That's my Ian Fryer impression. Not very good. I think you're fine. I'm sure he's going to love that. I'm sure you'll love that. But, um, yeah. So you, so then it kind of comes down to me. So it's almost like, you know, well, if no one's going to do it, I better do it. 
So I tend to, when I, when I write something, I, I tend to design it first with lots of lovely pictures and then write it to fit so I don't have to write that much. But it's, it's fascinating. I mean, the, I, the, the programs are so rich and there's so much stuff to, um, to scratch around with and talk about. And um, I don't know, I could talk about it for a long time, but it's like any, any art, any TV program, film or book. You come back to it five years later, you see something else. You see, you see, you look at it with new eyes. So that you, every now and then, people roll their eyes, thinking, "Oh, another episode guide." But the thing is that there's always something new to look at. It's always exciting to do an episode guide because those episodes, the 32 episodes of Thunderbirds, for instance, they they look, they feel very different now to how they felt 20 years ago for me mm. personally. And I think that's um, that's something that a lot of people. Um, feel as well well that's probably because you've grown up with them mike and now you're looking at them from the point of an adult you see things very differently when did you come into it i think it was quite late wasn't it what thunderbirds and everything um it was always there growing up my, my oldest brother he had lots of um the channel 5 videotapes i think he had the old betamax tapes of the compilation features and stacks of sig and i, I guess i kind of i think i remember seeing the stingray repeats in the late 80s on itv and of course, you know, the videos. And so by the time, I think I'd seen Thunderbirds definitely before BBC Two started re-showing them in 1991, I believe, on a Friday night, six o'clock. And I just, I was, I was ready for it. I hit the ground running, the Fleetway comic. I was already like a convert of um, the wonderful work of Steve Kite because I knew all those video sleeves inside out because they're lovely stuff. And so I was ready to kind of soak it all up, really. And I think um, I think I just got into charity shops and um, uh, collector shops before prices went sky high. I remember buying like stacks of TV twenty ones for eye wateringly cheap prices today. But uh, yeah, yeah, obviously a big comics fan then. And uh, again, this is all sort of visual stuff, isn't it? And design and the, and visual style that you're interested in. But now you're developing your own style, uh, Mike, in Fab Magazine. What kind of things do you aim for when you put the layout of a magazine together? What do you aim to achieve? I'm brutally honest, if I aim to achieve, I've been able to go down the pub and see my friends. <laughs> But um, no, 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 no. I, I, I stay up to see the clock in the morning. I mean, it's, it's all sort of, um, I, think, I think we're trying to kind of, we're trying to deliver stuff in our free time. So it's, um, it's you have like a wish. And usually I, I sort of um, start off with broad strokes, making stuff look as inventive and as inviting as possible. And then, um, and then gradually with the clock ticking, sometimes you just sort of have to make some compromises, I think. But um I guess it's all about, I love the idea of showing things which haven't been shown before. Or I like um, sort of having like a sweep of a series. It's like we've done certain articles that um, wrap up the whole like episode guide type features. We haven't done one for a while, actually, but we did a Far Black or Five feature a while ago. And I, it was really important to me to show each character in each vessel and each vehicle. So to sort of like take the uh, barometer, the pulse of the whole series and show it all on the page. So that's always quite satisfying to do. It's incredible, isn't it? And the richness of the shows are here you mention. So you've said how you got into the Jerry Anderson shows. Wanting to contribute is a very different thing, isn't it? And coming into a fan club, making contact with the people you've mentioned, uh, Ian Fryer and Nick Williams and the rest of the club team, how difficult was it to establish yourself within that? Incredibly or how easy, I should say. Well, no, it was incredibly difficult because they're, they're all incredibly difficult. No, no, they're lovely people. <laughs> Everyone, everyone's really inviting and, and really nice. And, um, yeah, no, it's, it's all great. I mean, I think we, what everyone's got in common is just 
you know, we, we all love this stuff and we, we want to look after it and present it in the best possible light. And we're all kind of, um, it, it, we sort of feel like we're like a, we're like a band that have been dropped by a record label. And, um, you know, we're sort of kind of self-financing. Well, not self-financing, but we're, a we're band like a band that's been dropped by a record label. That's yeah, an interesting like... analogy. How do you come by that one? Well, um, let me get my shovel and start digging. <laughs> well, we're sort of kind of, you know, we're, we're like, I, I say it's like a band, you know. We've been popular in the past, you know, but it's it's not been easy. But we're, we're still releasing the odd EP. We're trying to kind of self-promote ourselves and, you know. I think I think the whole nature of a fan club is sort of like a bit of an endangered species in the um, in the world of social media and um, message board. I mean, message boards almost going back twenty years, but I mean, especially with social media like Facebook and Twitter. And I think for a lot of people, that itch which they scratched back in the nineteen eighties through fan clubs and fanzines is now scratched through um, Facebook and Twitter and message boards and all that sort of stuff, having people's own blog and all that kind of thing. So there isn't there isn't like a as much of a need for a fan club. Well, people feel there's not as much need for a fan club as there was back in the 80s, where that was the only point of contact for these minority interests. So I guess we're sort of like, we're harking back to uh, the golden age of the fanzine of the 80s, of um, enthusiasts all gathered together, kind of trying to kind of, you know, create something special. So we're trying to kind of tap into that, which is a bit of a struggle at times, but um, I feel like we've, we've all kept it going. I think that there's like a genuine love for the... Um, for the club and um, for, for what it represents. Mm. Uh, now, yeah. Mike, researching the information for the shows can't be getting easier because we're all getting older. So are the people who made these shows getting older so much so that many of them aren't even with us anymore. How yeah, do we go about finding out more and more information when we don't have the people who are at the source? Well, me and Ian Fryer have started having regular seances. We're trying to contact <laughs> Dead. Um, we're, we're trying to contact long, long dead. Um, now, now. Script associates. No, I'm terribly sorry. It's very distasteful. <laughs> I do apologise. No, you're right. It is, it is incredibly difficult. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it is tricky. There, there are people. I mean, if you, I mean, a wonderful example is, is, the, is the lovely chap, Alan Schubert, who's, um, I think he sort of, he first appeared in the world of Fanderson, I suppose, in 2002, at the Standby Fraction Convention, we did like a, a whole presentation, and I know that's some 20, nearly 20 years ago now, but that was like you know quite late in the day as far as fandom goes, and he, and it just goes to show there are always people out there, and even even today we we kind of we come to contact with people. We've got a few interviews in the can of of people who um, haven't been interviewed before, who have like a unique perspective. Perhaps whilst Jerry Anderson was still alive, they wouldn't have got a look in for an interview because their name was so unimportant didn't even get on the end credits of a program but um now it's 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 you know it's we now realize that they're sometimes those voices are the most interesting because they, they were sort of on the shop floor and they, they, their perspective is quite fascinating so it is ever decreasing circles of um of people to as far as primary source um research goes but um that there's still people out there and there's still so much more to scratch around and, and root out for. Yeah. You mentioned the move to digital. You're working on books, proper paperback and hardback books, I'm guessing at the moment with some of the other people you've mentioned, like Chris Bentley. You've got a, a vault book, I do believe, that's in the making, another one of those. Can you see a time where you're only going to need a digital version of something like that? I, I'm i definitely the wrong person to ask that. I, I feel like I could... I could um, gas on about how important books are you know 
so the cows come home. I think there's, there's something quite special about picking up something that you, you, you can hold in your hands and between your thumb and forefinger, you know how many pages you've got left, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the, the fact, when you pick up a book, I mean, unless there's some new, you know, Apple have got some crazy new technology coming out in the future, but if you pick up a paperback book, nothing's going to pop up in the top right-hand corner telling you you've got an incoming email or something, you know. Nothing's going to disturb you. Whilst you're, pick, whilst you're reading that book, you're sort of in that world and no one's going to bother you. And I think there's something, you know, I mean, when you pick up a book and the way the shadow, the page falls, it's, I get very, very romantic about it. But it's, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's always going to be a place there. Especially, I think if you appreciate the Jerry Anderson shows, although they're futuristic, they're sort of very rooted in the past. There's like, um, I mean, Jerry was very kind of a product of that um, post-war veteran, I suppose, type thing. And he grew up in the shadow of um, the Second World War and the programs were made in that. And I think there's a lot of, there's a real old worldy feeling about them. And certainly that, you know, all the annuals and all the pu publications which came from it all kind of um, fall into that. Watching these shows and and running through, do you have a particular favourite show and a, and a least favourite show? Are some better than others in your eyes? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, Thunderbirds is just a masterpiece. I think it's brilliant. But it's the products of all the other shows that came before it and um, all the shows that came after it. You can see the DNA of Thunderbirds, you know, in all of them. I think um, I have a tough time with um, anything after Space 1999. I, I don't really... I don't really kind of um, get Terrorhawks too well. The theme tune's brilliant, but I just, I, I struggle with it. I'm looking forward to getting into it in a couple of years' time, though, because, you know, I'm sure I'm bound to, but it's lovely to kind of rediscover something. You think but, it's like after the Lou Grade era, it, it was really like the golden era of all this stuff, not just for Jerry Anderson, but all the ITC series that we've seen made by um, Patrick McGowan, Monty Berman, for example. It was a bit of a golden era of television and film. Yeah, it certainly was. There's a real inventive flair. I feel like I'm very fond of um, Monty Berman, you mentioned. I'm very fond of him and him and Dennis Spooner, another Thunderbirds veteran himself. Um, the Champions, very fond of that series. There's a, there's a wonderful... Um, there's something about that time, I think, that they um, they seem to have a, a, a swagger and a confidence, I suppose. And Luke Grade certainly had a swagger when he was writing his checks, commissioning all these um, marvellous series filmed in pristine 35mm but uh, Thunderbirds is definitely a high water mark, and I suppose, yeah, I don't really, I do struggle with Space 1999 as a rule. I kind of, um, I'm very fond of the first year, but when you get to the second year, I don't know. I've got two brothers, two older brothers, and one of them loves the first year, and one of them loves the second year, because he was a little bit younger and liked all the monsters and all that stuff. And mm. But I'm very fond of um, Howard's Way, and, um, you know, we've got old um, Tony, Tony Anholt. Tony Anholt, yes. And he's, um, he's great in that, so um, there's something in there for year two for me. Well, how do you get on with The Protectors? Because that's another series that um, showcased Tony Anholt's talents. A yeah, <laughs> good-looking yeah. guy it's, as uh, well. I quite like it. I think it's sort of... Um, yeah, it's all right. It, it sort of kind of it suffers a little, little bit because... Um, it's different from are... all the other programmes, isn't it? Not being science fiction. No, they're quite right. I mean, um, it's... The plot's a wafer thin. It really struggles from being 25 minutes. So it sort of comes across as sort of like a poor relation to um, um, the Persuaders or, I don't know, one of those lavish, more lavish ITC series from five, year, five or so years before kind of suffers in that regard. Writing articles on these shows 
can you distance yourself enough from your own personal feelings in order to be objective about them? Would it be difficult then to write an article yourself about the protectors or terror hawks? And much easier for you to write something about Thunderbirds. I've I've written an article on, on the protectors before. I found that quite um it was quite a discipline. I had to kind of I I planned it all out. I had different sections of things I wanted to cover. It was like a kind of anniversary piece. And um I felt like we needed an article on the protectors and um, we hadn't done one for a while and there was nothing in the um nothing in the inbox. There was no, no um nothing in the on the back burner. So I, I sat down and wrote like a bit of a an an overriding piece on the, on the series. I enjoyed it. There was a lot to, a lot of meat on the bones, a lot of stuff to talk about. I think, um, I think I, I look back on it and I think that, um, Jerry Anderson was sort of put in like a kind of safe place, a holding pen by Lou Grade to keep him safe there for whenever Lou Grade could, you know, stifle up enough money to commission a lavish series, which became space in 1999. Mm. It's almost like a safe place to keep him there. It's interesting. Very interesting, isn't it? I remember Ian Fryer conducting a very, very interesting um, interview with the director, John Howe. He directed, I believe, one of my favourite episodes of The Protectors, which was Shadbolt. And I thought, where did that name come from? And I learned from Ian's article that the name Shadbolt came from a factory that I think John Howe saw whilst driving around the uh, North Circular Road in London. Fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> a great, great little factor. That is a great episode. That's really good fun, that one. It's certainly one of my favourites, and I am a great fan of um, Tom Bell as well, who we saw in other television shows like Out. But oh. yes, uh, a good addition to the protectors. I'm glad they cast him in that role because he was suitably sinister. I've got to ask you, Mike, because time's moving on. Uh, what things would you like to see happen in the future for the magazine? And I, I wonder if you're going to put out a call for people listening to this, members of the club, to actually contribute articles in the future. Can you see it running for another 10 years, Fab Magazine? Absolutely, yeah. There's, we'll never, ever run out of things to talk about. I think that there's always going to be a place for it. It'd be brilliant, as you say, yeah, if people wanted to contribute more. It, it, it would be great to have more people kind of write in. and we, we tend to get lots of articles submitted on Captain Scarlet for some reason. I think people feel more comfortable writing about that series than Thunderbirds. There's stuff like The Protectors, as I touched upon earlier, not many people uh, seem to be quite um, interested in writing about it. But um, I think it's, we'll definitely revisit The Protectors at some point in the future. That's one of the, one of the best things is hearing other people's points of view and... Um, any opinions valid, I suppose, as long as it's presented in like an even manner. So it's um, it's always great, and I think people get intimidated by having to um, put together something incredibly finely tuned and researched. But I think sometimes you don't have to wait into like um, dozens and dozens of um, recording um, details and dates. <laughs> sometimes a small observation can be can be just as fascinating and satisfying to read. That kind of thing. Which brings us back to one of your most recent booklets, is the Puppet Catalogue. I've got to say I really like that. And I can only describe it as like a repertory company of actors, that these puppets in the Century 21 era, well, even in the Thunderbirds era, got used again and again and again, didn't they, in different roles. But in Captain Scarlet and Joe 90 and the Secret Service, in particular, they got re-wigged and moustaches added or their hair colour change or hairstyles change completely were given far eastern looks or far western looks it was quite incredible and your book highlights all of that 
Yeah, it's been wonderful to put together. I mean, it's, it's leading on from the, the great work. I think Chris, Chris Bentley um, and Stephen Brown and, and Lynn, Lynn Simpson um, did all the initial work. Um, I think it was Stephen and Lynn who kind of set the ball rolling back in the days of VHS and um, moving on to DVD. I think they started in fabs, I think I want to say 32 and then 30, I know this, 32 and 34. And then we, then we visited in my time in 59 the three Century 21 puppet series. And we've all wanted, we talked about it for years now, probably a decade, um, about kind of put them all in one book. And after we did all the, the three close-up books, we had a lot of those images on file that I'd grabbed. And so it was, I, I thought it'd be a lot easier than it actually was, but actually trying to put them all together and trying to fo photograph every single reappearance um, turned into a bit of a monster. But um, we, we we got there in the end. It's, um, it is great. I, I want to um, revisit revisit some of the pages because some of the characters some of the puppets even um have played so many different characters i sort of i like the idea of writing a biography for one of these characters you know like kruger from the heart of new york he was um you know he's he's had quite a kind of um schizophrenic um career he's been up and down and done lots of things he's been a criminal he's been a guard i think he'd make a great biography I think i'd love to do that take, take some of these characters and kind of you know put together their um, life story well something for the future there mike uh, finally um, I'm going to ask you, and for the benefit of uh, the Fanderson members listening, a quick teaser for Fab 96. Right, Fab 96. Well, oh, yeah, we've got a wonderful, wonderful piece written by um, a great chap who contributes to Doctor Who magazine on a regular basis and has written some lovely stuff over the years and brilliant books as well. Andrew Pixley's written a, a great piece on the latter days of the puppet studios in Century 21, which is going to be great. That's going to be a nice piece. Ian's cooking up a lovely thing at the moment. Don't think I can say too much. There's a few interviews in the can we've been waiting to um, waiting to publish at the right time. We've had a lot of Thunderbirds lately, so I probably need to step away from that. But, um, yeah, I think I've told you enough. I, I don't want to say stuff that doesn't happen. Because when are we going to see a feature on the Animates? Well, there you go then. Well, <laughs> Ross, if, if you'd like to write one, there's always an open door for you. So um, <laughs> drop, drop, drop us a line. You can, you can write, um, you know, a couple of pages. That'd be, that'd be great. You should go for it. Well, Mike Jones, uh, co-editor of Fab, I've got to say it's been a great pleasure chatting with you today on this uh, podcast. I'm sure the members are going to want more and you're going to have to come back again and uh, do another one. Good luck for the future with all your projects. Bless you. Cheers now. See you. Sylvia Anderson made her first and only appearance at a Fanderson event when she attended the Future is Fantastic convention in 2015. In conversation with Ian Fryer, she kept a packed room enthralled with her recollections of AP Films, Century 21 and their many productions. Well, in the first clip, Sylvia explains how she helped the fledgling company keep afloat by making ends meet. Now, you were almost farmed out to different production companies. Oh, yes. Alan Perry <laughs> says that he met you first on The Adventures of Robin Hood and Walton on Thames. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, do you recall some of the productions that you worked on at the time to, to help keep the show on the road? I, yeah, well, help. I, you know, I could actually. My father, when I'd gone to university, said to me, Well, you, you know, if you're going into all this malarkey, you're going into, you must go to business school. And so you can earn a living one time when it all goes wrong. So I did. <laughs> and uh, so I could type. 
So that was the worst thing I ever did because I was the one always sent out to some awful place. And I can remember being on the slough trading estate on a lovely sunny day, like today. And that evening, I was going to give a little party for some reason or other. Someone who saw me not long ago said, oh, you're always giving parties. I said, well, thank God I did. Otherwise, I'd be working all the time, you know. So uh, I remember sitting in the, I, was, I used to do letters to compl complaints, people that found a mouse or something in their chocolate bar. <laughs> and, um, and I remember um, being amazed that I could only go to the laboratory when they told me I could, you know. So you'd have um, 10 minutes or something. Mr. Mars would come around. And uh, a funny man with tennis shoes on and music. He really is a Mr. Boz. I didn't realize there was. And I didn't know about clocking in and clocking out. So I was doing all stupid things, not because I didn't know. But one day I thought, oh, I don't know. It's a lovely day and I haven't done anything to this party. So I just walked out one day and they said, you can't go. I said, mm, I can't. I've gone. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is I wasn't very, very disciplined. Yeah. So, the, and this is sort of just to fill in in between jobs for Absolutely. Oh, yeah. The only yeah. reason I was there was to pay the wages of, you know, yeah. of people. A, and it's about two streets away on Edinburgh Road on the Slough Trading Estate. <laughs> I was there in July uh, to, to see the studio before it got knocked down and it still smells of Mars bars. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Bars. Yeah. Really? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I, I was amazed at the whole thing. We used to get, um, shows how long ago it was. We used to get a woodbine, and I didn't smoke, um, a Mars bar, Milky Way or something, on our desk. That was it, you know, in case we got, you know, felt we ought to have more. So I found myself smoking when I didn't really smoke and eating these bars of chocolate. But I thought, oh, God, no. So I did disappear that day. And uh, wrote a, I wrote a little note and said, sorry, but I had to go. And I said to the guys, sorry, you're the next ones are going out and doing work now because I'm not doing anymore. Was there a Frankie Howard movie that you worked on? Oh, yeah. That, that was quite a lot of the same work time. Oh, God. Bringing out my past now. Frankie Howard, you, you all know about lip syncing, don't you? <coughs> no, when, when, you, when you have to, have to do a wild track, if someone, uh, for some reason, there's a noise when you're saying you're part. And Franny Howard was always um, going off at a tangent. He didn't stick to the script. <laughs> Some of it was viewable and other things it wasn't. <laughs> so um, it meant that when we actually had to deliver the film, we had to then fit his mouth movement to the sound that, that appeared. It was very difficult. So I remember working in the cutting room for the first time. I remember Jerry saying to me, now be unobtrusive, Sylvia, because you don't have a ticket, you know, you're not, because I was very hot on that then. And so what's the first thing I did, I went to get my hair done, and for some reason I came out orange or something, <laughs> because I remember as an Italian um, hairdresser, he was cooking spaghetti or something in the back. And I said, don't you think I ought to take this off now? And he said, no, no, a bit more. Still eating his spaghetti. And I came out orange. So that meant that I couldn't be unobtrusive. <laughs> and I had to have a scarf on the whole time. That was the first 
catastrophe. And the second one was that um, I was told if you, you must never lose a piece of film. If you do, you stay behind until you find it. I said, of course I wouldn't lose. How would I lose a bit of film? Until somebody that used to work for us, and he knew it all, came into my cutting room and said, I'll help you, Sylvia. And he was like fiddling around with this. I said, hey, don't touch that, because if I can't find it, you know, he said, oh, don't take notice of that. And then he swanned off. And true to think, I couldn't find that piece of film. So I spent, God knows how many hours trying to do that. And then I thought, you know what? I don't care. <laughs> so I left that one with hair and a cutting piece, and I'm sure he, he, he didn't do it deliberately, but he was showing off a bit, showing me how quickly he could do it. So I thought, no, I don't think so. I mean, cutting was a very interesting thing to do. And I, I, well, I did like that aspect because you, it's very hard work, as you, anyone that's been involved. And you make or break a film or a piece of film that you've just shot. But it was very hard work. And um, I thought, hmm, I don't still isn't what I was supposed to be doing. So I came out of there. Yeah. On to the next thing. We'll hear more from Sylvia later in this programme. Well, I think I briefly let the cat out of the bag that um, I was involved recently with the production of uh, Fanderson's 4 CD UFO set, which is winding its way to members now. I've seen a lot of postings over at the Fanderson Facebook page. Writing the book, yes, that was a mammoth task, but we've got to talk about an even bigger task now because I wouldn't have been able to carry that work out if it were not for the efforts of a certain individual. That person I'm going to chat to now, his name's Ralph Titterton, as manager of the Barry Gray Archive. I must say it's a delight to have you on the second Fanderson podcast, Ralph. Welcome along. Thank you. For the benefit of our listeners, we've got to talk about the genesis of the project, the Barry Gray Archive, the cataloguing of it, and well, just getting hold of it. Well, where do we begin? Where do you start? I was first got involved with Barry Gray when I was working for Hospital Radio back in Margate, and I was able to interview both Jerry Anderson back in 1977, and he gave me an introduction to Barry Gray, and I went and made a programme with him for Hospital Radio and kept in contact after that. You're obviously a big fan of the music then. Oh yes, I have been since um, I first got introduced to the programmes. I was six years old when I first saw Fireball XL5, so I've really grown up with these programmes. And as Jerry's content get more adult, then I was at that age to appreciate it. But moving into the 1980s, there had always been a rumour circulating among fan circles that Barry's wife, Joan, had a massive store of these audio reels just dumped in a garage somewhere. And this rumour just circulated for quite some time. And it was only after Joan's death in 1992 that it turned out that these rumours happened to be true. Now, at that time, I was doing some consultancy work for Record Collectors magazine, which were doing some features on Barry Gray's music. 
and I was contacted by a company called White and Sons, who I thought were a bunch of solicitors, but in fact turned out to be um, removal men based in Guernsey. And um, they wanted me to go out and catalogue all these tapes. And can I do it in one weekend, please? To which I said, no. Phew. <laughs> but anyway, um, it went quiet for a little while. And then I discovered that Simon Gray, which is Barry's adopted son, had brought all this material across from Guernsey and put it into a dingy, horrible lockup in Chelsea and was looking to explore selling these tapes. So I basically approached him and said, I'm willing to take on this collection, catalogue it, get it into some form of order, and see what we can do to commercially exploit this material at a future date. So a group of us went up to this lockup and we were shocked by the state of these reels. They were in damp cardboard boxes, so lots of the boxes were broken. They were just dumped in there, literally. So there was even um, his Ons Martino uh, was in there as well, and various other musical instruments. So we packed a full transit with literally everything that was in there, brought it back here, and basically my dining room for the next five years became a storage area as we gradually worked our way through what was there and trying to get it in some resemblance of order. So it took over your whole house and I, and I guess at that time as well took over your whole life. Oh yes and this is at a time when I was working full-time as a nurse so and my partner was working full-time as well so we were fitting this in around everything else but can you imagine the smell of mildew, damp cardboard it just permeated the whole place. But you were glad to have it there, I, I bet. Oh, yes, because I could recall the very first time we had a look at some of Barry's amateur film footage because he liked to shoot home movies. And we discovered the only existing colour for Feather Falls footage. Oh, wow. Which has yes. appeared on various DVD and Blu-ray releases since the day we first found it. But you can imagine what a magic moment that was. I bet it must have been. Can you estimate how long, roughly, that this material had been stored in a garage? Presumably the mildew and damp had really permeated through it for some time. Well, as far as I'm aware, the last time that Barry used any of it was for the Super Space Theatre releases in America which would have been in the very early 1980s, because Barry died in 1984. So if Joan died in 92, then you've got virtually almost another decade of these things just sitting there. Yeah, we got, we even had his tape recorder in there, uh, an old Revox. Uh, we took that to a local electric store and they serviced it. And they said to us, uh, once we've got the farmyard out of the inside of it, <laughs> we've got it functioning. And it has remained functioning to this day. We've used it quite a lot on all the various releases over the years. And in fact, was last used for Standby for Adverts and another album yet to be released. When we were going through all that material, 
So, uh, yeah, it's still working. The work is ongoing. Oh, yes. So we've got this other album that we want to get out, which is the flip side of Barry Gray, which is really an eclectic mix of all the other bits and pieces that he was involved with musically, away from the Anderson programmes. So that's one that we'd like to see in the light of day. We're still doing material for Silver Screen Records. And we are literally doing vinyl records as well as CDs with them. Um, the next title's up and ready to go. And we're already planning uh, what we're going to do after that. Now, these tapes themselves, now they're, let's get this right, Ralph. They're, they're quarter-inch tapes, aren't they? These are open-reel tapes, seven and a half inches per second, open-reel tapes. And um, what was... I have to correct you there, Ros. They're 15, uh, 15. overall. There is some seven and a half, but uh, the bulk of it is 15. So you've got uh, 12-inch reels, and they will run for approximately 30 minutes at that speed. Following which, on the first time round, we then had to strip the tape recorders and clean everything uh, to get all the Belgium and everything else that came off them before you could run the next reel through. What was the first one you put in and how did it sound? It sounded as crystal clear as putting a CD into a modern machine. That's how good it sounded. Must have been a wonderful feeling. Oh, yes, because the, thing, the first thing we played was Trapped in the Sky, which is Thunderbirds. And the thing that stands out there is the launch sequences for both Thunderbird 1 and Thunderbird 2, which is what Tim did as a suite on, I think it was the first Thunderbirds release we did. This is Tim Mallet. This is Tim Mallet. Tim Mallet, yes, mm-hmm. right. And he put the Thunderbird 5 drum roll on the start of that piece and then put all three pieces together. Now, obviously, at some stage, the material had to go from tape to digital in order for people to work on it in a modern studio. How did that happen? Well, it had to make sure... Every time you run one of these reels, you risk the sound quality dropping. So what I had to do, I couldn't afford a DAT machine at the time. So I used to buy the best quality audio cassettes that I could purchase. And we recorded onto those. As we recorded, I was marking down the content of every piece of music on each reel. Out of that then Kathy devised a library system for each series which we still use to this day uh, so she did the cataloging side of the work while I did the physical recording but we wanted as far as possible just to run the reel once and just run it straight on to another medium and then later Tim Mallet would take those reels and put them onto disc and subsequently onto hard drives, which is what we use now. I mean, we must give credit as well to your partner, Cathy Ford, at this stage. We haven't really mentioned her in detail yet. She sat and catalogued a lot of the stuff with you. Was there anything that uh, either of you didn't recognise when you went through it? Because I'm guessing that uh, Barry composed so much material that not all of it got used. I think we focus more on what we knew, and it's only the more 
obscure material that we've actually started to explore in more recent years. And by that, I'm referring to Standby for Adverts and the flip side of Barry Gray, because that really exploring all those sort of miscellaneous rules that you put to one side. Yes, exploring the more obscure side of the music. We've done that, we put it to one side, it's ready to go. But there is one piece we did find, and it's got a bit of a mystery to it. Fanderson have used it. They used it at the Fanderson Gold Convention several years back. And it's a piece that Barry wrote very much in the style of Thunderbirds. But it was called Shipbuilding. And according to the audio reel, it was done for Rank Films in 1966. And so I finally managed to track down this film via the BFI. Paid a horrendous amount of money to get a copy. And when we played the film, this piece of music wasn't there. Oh. So, bit of a mystery as to what it is. However, there is a very interesting soundtrack on that film, which really is a mix between UFO and Thunderbirds. So that in itself is quite interesting. But what we've done in the meantime is one of my musical arrangers and myself, we've taken ownership of this piece of music and we now jointly own it. Not well sure what that's going to mean in financial terms, but basically we now own part of the estate in that respect. And there's another piece of music that Barry wrote is Latiyitz, which we also have taken ownership of, and that's the International Rescue March, which again was done in very much the style of Thunderbirds. Ralph, what about the music manuscripts? Presumably there were lots of those as well. Or without masses of them all handwritten by Barry, all done in his very intricate pencils. And in fact, when I took early retirement from nursing back in just just after the concert in 2008, I spent the next five years literally scanning all of these music manuscripts into a digital format because that way it protected the originals. And secondly, mean I could send out electronic copies to my musical arrangers who would then make arrangements for orchestra, for brass band, for wing concert band, and for piano as well. So we have all these pieces available that orchestras and bands can purchase from us. Or even just somebody in their own front room with a piano. They, they, we've got a selection of scores they can purchase as well. Um, That's a whole other side to the archive that uh, we still continue to explore. Now I've seen some of Barry Gray's handwriting. It's very artistic, isn't it? Oh, it is. He was a fan of calligraphy. And in fact, one of the things we've got here in the office is a set of his um, ink pens. His lettering is absolutely beautiful. And in fact, one of the things I treasure, back in 1982, Barry was guest at one of the very early fantasy conventions. At that convention, I wrote a piece, an A4 one-sided piece, which was going to go in the convention book. I sent it out to Barry to proofread. Not only did he write the whole thing out in his beautiful handwriting, 
he also recorded it and sent back an audio recording as well. And it's out of that piece that was originally written, say, all those years ago, that Cathy is now writing his biography. And we're now up to somewhere around 20,000 words and still counted. Now, you just to backtrack on something else you said in that was uh, the Barry Gray concert. I have to say, for me, one of the highlights was was that concert on the South Bank. Yes, I think that was responsible for me letting my hair go white. <laughs> it's You learn a lot as you go along with something like that. And you also learn a lot about people and people trying to make you spend money that you can ill afford. I have people say to me, do you want internal flames in your concert hall? Do you want to use this publicity, that publicity, you know? We had a zero budget for publicity, so we only spent a very little towards the very end. We were using computer technology just to get the word out to everybody. So it was a big, big learning experience. And the other thing I remember mostly about that night, and Brian, blessed if you're listening, close your ears, sir. <laughs> you don't keep to the bloody script. We had that evening was particularly planned, literally line by line. Everybody that was involved had their own personal copy. Everyone knew exactly what we were going to do. Everything was meticulously timed. We had it down to perfection. I even had a copy for Brian with his words out in bold so it would stand out for him when he was on the stage. And he didn't keep to the script. And because he didn't keep to the script, we overrun Act 1 by 20 minutes. Wow. Now... That is a horrendous amount of time because if you go beyond 10.30 in the evening at this venue, you get penalised a high financial cost. So we had to cut out segments from Act 2 just to make sure that we ended it in time because there should have been a whole breakaway suite following the Space 1999 titles. That had to go. There was a piece of music of from Joe 90 had to go. There was my special tribute to Barry himself. That had to be had a radical change because originally we were going to run a piece of music and then I was going to drop all the house lights so the whole place goes black. And then I was going to spotlight a piano on the stage and as you spotlighted this piano you would hear this soundtrack coming over the hall speakers of Barry playing the piano and up on the screen you would see that montage of home movie footage and then the idea was when that came to an end the lights came up and we went straight into UFO but it really was meant to be a very poignant part of the concert because with all of the soundtrack albums we've done we've always tried to have a piece on there which is Barry himself playing the piano um, so I wanted to do that within the body of the concert as well which is why you see that montage of home movie material at the very end of the concert because originally that was going to be the launch sequence to Thunderbird 2 but I thought Leonard spent so much effort making that film that I was going to drop Thunderbird 2 and put up the home footage and I think it works 
because it ends on the image of Barry Gray on top of the screen. And that's how, that's how the concert came to its end. Well, it was a very memorable night, uh, Ralph. Would you do it again? No, 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 not much. <laughs> I don't think, I don't have the physical strength and the mental ability now um, since last year's accident. I'm taking more of a sort of step back. There are things I am doing, and I help and support lots of people who are doing other bits and pieces, but I couldn't go through all of that again. Well, maybe this is a signal for someone else to pick up the baton here and uh, carry it forth and perhaps do another one, because uh, I certainly remember it well. It's a long time ago now. Time certainly passes by very quickly, as it's done with this uh, podcast, Ralph. So I've got to say a big thanks to you for joining us uh, on the podcast today. Ralph Titterton, you are the manager of the Barry Gray Archive. Let's hope we speak again soon. Okay, bye, Ross. Thanks very much once again to Ralph Titterton, and I'm sure the whole of Fanderson wants to wish you well. Back now to Sylvia Anderson and her interview with Ian Fryer at Fanderson's The Future is Fantastic convention in 2015. In this clip, Sylvia talks about the early days of Supercar and creating memorable characters. What was your part in the, in the creation of Supercar? Of Supercar? Yeah. Supercar was based on an idea. Well, we used to have regular get-togethers, of the ones that were left now, <laughs> of this, this great outfit. Uh, how we can do something that we... First of all, we wanted to get away from the early things that we did with Roberta Lee, uh, and anything we could think of that could get away from that side of business, uh, but have a good story. So we'd sit around and say, well, what can we do with puppets that we couldn't shoot over here with live actors? And we thought, well, westerns were very popular then, so you had sort of uh, famous people, you know, in big the movies, and we thought, well, puppets could cover. So that's how we first met uh, Nicholas Parsons. And so all we did was say, well, let's take the idea of a Western. So you have Dan Morse is in the Telegraph office, and you've got um, the, the lead, you know, the cowboy hat and everything. Oh, text talker. Yeah. Text talker, that's right. And and so on. Uh, the only thing we, we didn't weren't sure of is, is to have the bar in the westerns and the good time goes. We thought we'd better leave that out. Backstage. We hadn't quite got to that. Was there any thought as to uh, that the characters, the look of the characters, were based on real actors? Oh yes, quite a lot. What I've discovered, because I was mostly now by then, I was mostly involved with the writing with Jerry, um, with our characters. We always did the first episode ourselves, then later on we brought other people in. And so the characters were my thing that I did. And what I found was that um, there are only so many faces that you can use. So there are only about five or six. If I look around here, I will only see five or six type faces. Uh, so if I'm waiting to get on a plane at the airport, 
um, I studied the faces. So you have um, the basic, which you learn in art school, the shape phase, the oval phase, the square phase, and so on. It's only um, based on that that people get older, they get fatter, or whatever. And so I realized that there was only so many ideas that you can have, and then you go from beyond that. So, um, from my point of view, I thought that was interesting. And so that formed the basis of when we were doing the puppets. Um, but the rest, when we were doing not only the puppets, but other, using other actors, they were based on well-known people at the time. A Liz Taylor face, um, a leading man, James Garner, all these people. This is really um, aging me, isn't it? So what I say to people now, I've got a picture, I've got photographs in my home, and I've got one of me with Tony Curtis. And it was really quite a shock when someone said, who's that? And I said, that's Tony Curtis. Who's he? Who's that? So I really realized that the years have gone by. And another one, um, Joe Collins, I said to someone, I said, because that was with Joe Collins. Joe Collins, I don't know him. <laughs> no, no, it's Joan Collins, you don't know her? No, I've never heard of her. So you do realise that coffee years have gone by. Fortunately, it's on film a lot, so you do. Do you have that trouble? Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I... But then again, I kind of... I, I talk about Roy Rogers and people like that. Oh, Roy Rogers. Well, maybe to talk more broadly about uh, creating characters, because uh, character visualisation was uh, was one of the things you were responsible for for most of the series. And so, I think I know what you're going to say. Well, I said, was there an art to that? So that creating <laughs> a mix of characters that would work in a series, like creating the Tracy Brothers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, the Tracy Brothers, yeah. Tracy Brothers were, were based on uh, Hollywood Western, mm -hmm. where the man, I'm trying to think the name of it, um, where the man had these... Are we talking Bonanza? Bonanza, that's it, yes. And then that was a you know, very, very popular. Jeff looks very like Lauren Green. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you might see that. Um, so I thought, well, why not? Because um, if you... If you just give up a leading lady and a leading man, which most films were set up by just that, if you happen, if you happen not to like all that, then you yeah. can know where to go. So I thought, well, why don't we do that? So I went into the puppet workshop and I said, how do you feel about doing you know, more than one of these brothers and everything? And they thought, well, good idea. So that's, they got to work and I gave them some ideas. <coughs> movies at that time. So I thought that's one way because we were always thinking of how do you attract an audience, you know, will that person like that. So um, therefore that worked out very well, I think, because Howard became the baby really. Yeah. And especially in the dream sequences is one of my favourite movies when they go up to the swinging star and all that. Um, and that gave you a, an idea for different um, storylines and so on. But did you find the one-hour format gave you more scope to... That's right, it did, it did. And if you notice that, uh, even in uh, TV now, 
the you know sort of phase of the week. They're always based on a couple of people or three people, so that you can go back into the backstory. And you always know when you're reaching the end of the series, because when you go back into a dream, yeah. because that's the old way of bringing up yeah. things again. I'm giving away a lot of secrets here. <laughs> Did you? Was it? Was it a different art when, when you were doing live action series, when the time you got to UFO and you were creating characters for UFO and for Space 1999? Yes, yes. Was it a different art because you were aiming at a different audience? It is a, it is a different audience, really, you know. Um, and you realise that filming uh, for artists, and we're sitting here talking, you know, you can do that with any strings. Yeah. And you, you know, over the latest... Um, do this now, and the public stuff is being done, the remake of Thunderbirds. I'm, I'm, I'm still amazed that uh, their puppets can stand up, <laughs> sit down, all in one shot. But uh, that's how things work these days. The second of our fascinating clips with Sylvia Anderson there. Anyone who was at that event will know what a memorable interview it was. And I understand that Sylvia was quite touched by the warm reaction from the audience. If you'd like to hear the full interview, it's available on CD from the club. Many thanks to Nick Clues for supplying his interview recording. And so ends another Fanderson podcast. I do hope that you've enjoyed listening and that you'll join me again for the next one. Thanks again to all of our wonderful guests. Fanderson is the world's only official appreciation society for the work of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson, with its own club magazine, exclusive merchandise and more. If you'd like more information, please see our website at fanderson.org.uk. I've been Ros Connors and I'm going to leave you today with this thought. Cast your mind back to the UFO episode Court Martial, where Colonel Paul Foster is accused of espionage. He knows nothing about it. Surely, he thinks, it must be some mistake. There seems to have been a security leak. His apartment's been bugged and shadow secrets have passed to an industrial spy who was after information about the film studio. The culprit is a Miss Grant, played by Georgina Cookson, who's unwillingly brought to the Harlington Straker Film Studio office to sign an affidavit to clear Paul Foster's name. Now the question is, if Shadow is such a secret organisation, then why oh why does Commander Straker, or Mr Straker as it should be, head of the film studio, why does he get Miss Grant to sign the affidavit on Shadow-headed notepaper clearly visible in the shot before and after i'll leave you to go and have a look at your dvds and your blu-rays and i'll catch you next time for another fanderson podcast in the meantime bye for now and stay safe